0: The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.
1: So can a company be both equitable and apolitical? Is the chasm between those who see Silicon Valley as a meritocracy and those who are willing to call out its inequities growing larger? Is there a quiet backlash against last year's racial justice movements happening at technology companies? These are some of the questions that we're going to talk about on today's episode of the Provoke Media Podcast. To have this conversation, we have Charles Hudson on the show. Charles is managing partner and founder of Precursor Ventures, an early stage venture capital firm. Charles has been in Silicon Valley since the mid-90s, attending Stanford for undergrad and grad school, and then building a career in venture capital. Also, we're happy to welcome back to this show Sarita Musante, who has worked in Tech PR. Here in silicon valley for more than three decades leading agencies and teams she's now EVP of b2b and enterprise tech at pretel and this show is part of the uh, our groundbreaking series um intersection which i will link to in the show notes welcome charles and sarita
0: thank you for having me
1: yeah so, yes well i mean sarita it's it's i'm thrilled to bring you back and charles i'm so excited to have you on the show and Charles, I, I want to sort of start with you, you know, because you've been out here for a long time and, you know, firsthand how much Silicon Valley's culture is, is built around this idea of meritocracy. Um, but even as early as I think it was 2013, I saw a Wired article that called it out as not a meritocracy, but like danger, dangerous hero worship. Um, and then I think in 2016, I think the Atlantic even did a story where women were challenging this as well. So I'm curious if you would ever bought into this idea that Silicon Valley was a meritocracy and. When or how did that shift?
0: I mean, I definitely, in my early career, largely believed that. And I I think it depends on your perspective when you're in the room. I think if you're a man from the subset of schools that tends to end up having people in venture capital or leadership positions in tech, within your little bubble, it actually weirdly can feel quite fair like you're competing against a set of people that you think are all qualified and there needs to be some rationalization for why does person A win when person B is like also qualified. So you need some narrative for how the sort of rewards of the system are allocated among people. And the meritocracy one is very convenient because it also allows for sort of the ability to explain arbitrary windfalls. Well, this person made a lot of money by starting this company because they had the foresight to see these market trends, not that they were just lucky or happened to be Mm well-placed. And I think it wasn't until I started looking around and saying, like, maybe it feels fair if you're on the playing field competing for capital. Like, if you're just allocating capital to men, then it is easy to say, well, we're allocating capital to the strongest male teams that come into our office. It doesn't really beg the question of, like, well, why are only male teams into the partner meeting why are only white people getting the opportunity to raise money when i started looking around and saying well why am i the only person who looks like me in many of these rooms in many of these conversations um i think i realized that like i am the, one of the only people in this room and the reason why i think is has a lot to do with where i went to school and where i worked and like there's a bunch of check boxes that if you're a person of color or a woman, if you can sort of accumulate some of these mirror badges, you will find yourself in these rooms. And I think you'll oftentimes find yourself as the only person. And what I would say maybe 10 years ago is I think there, was, there wasn't a recognition about what it feels like or what it looks like to be in one of those rooms when you're not part of the dominant group. And I think what's shifting in the conversation why this is difficult is the people that were maybe once the only person in the room are now one of a small group. And I think they're trying to force the people who are sort of the, the more dominant group to reflect on, like, well, why is the room, how did the room composition end up this way? Because if it's truly based on merit and ability, you're essentially saying that women and people of color don't have the talent. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah sarita and you know you've been out here almost as long as charles has been um what's your take on this and you know did you ever have that moment or or as a woman um, of color um was it was your experience different
2: you know i think it took me a long time to really register why the things were happening i was very aware that i was the only woman of color in the room but every, you know I tended to be surrounded by white liberals who were my friends and who you know and it was kind of like, well, I'm not really sure about why this is happening um and I think you know just like everybody you want to, everybody else you want to think the best of your coworkers and your colleagues and your and and the the people who become your friends. I don't think there's anything um intentional happening. And I think that's where some of that defensiveness comes in. Some of that resistance to the conversation comes in because there, there are a lot of very good people who don't want it to be the way it is, but until they understand that they have to take action uh, as well as sort of me taking action to, to change things, um, you know, we're we're all sort of complicit. I I think for me, I had a moment where uh, I worked with a company out of san francisco uh, and they had a, uh, a a chief strategy officer who was a woman of color um, she was probably i don't know like four foot seven uh and was usually in charge when she was in the room at work and she uh, and i had a conversation about uh, 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 sort of about this loosely and she said you know how many times were in that room together and people say, you know, someone will say, okay, well, we should get started. And they turn sort of to the tallest kind of white dude in the room with the assumption that he's going to start the meeting. Or someone will ask her, you know, if she could bring in the snacks. Um, and not think anything of it. Right. And not 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 think that, that might that might be offensive or that might be inappropriate. Um, or that, that, or even just to think you generally, you genuinely don't know who's in charge. You can't judge that from the outside of the, of the person. So, so, so I think at a moment with her, where we really went, we we really said, you know, like, this is not, you have to find a a path. We have to walk the line between, um, being understanding that, that the people around you may not intentionally mean you any harm, right? May not intentionally be trying to perpetuate, uh, a racist scenario, um, and also being cognizant of the fact that 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 they are complicit.
1: Right, yeah, and I think you, you raise a really great point about, you know, when you have organizations where folks see themselves as progressive and open-minded, some of the blind spots that, that can that can arise from that, and if we have time, out, oh, we'll maybe circle back um, to that, but I, but I do want to take a moment to, to talk about how VC money is distributed, right? I mean, and again, Charles, correct me if these numbers are dated, but from what I last saw, I think about 18% of VCs were women, 3% were Black, 1% were Latino. And for every, $9, nine, for every $10 of VC money that goes um, to startups, ten, nine, nine of those go to startups led by men. So how do you talk about equity in a climate like this?
0: Um, I think something serious said is really important, which is why I think the tech industry has struggled with this issue so much is I think for a long time, tech has positioned itself as like, we are an industry that's different than others. We're, we're better, we're higher-minded, we're not, motive. we're not, we're capitalists, but we're motivated to make the world a better place and technology is gonna deliver this better future. We're not Philip Morris, we're not, uh, we're not some fossil fuel company polluting the environment. We're like this better, we're this better, more utopian industry. And I think when you have that self-perception, it makes criticism, particularly self-criticism, difficult. And so I think in many things in business, including venture-backed companies, we're very focused on the outcomes. So if your VP of sales came to you and said, Artsy, I tried really hard to make my number this quarter. I made a bunch of calls. I talked to a lot of customers. I just didn't close enough sales but like I'm on it, next quarter, I'm on it. That VP of sales would not last very long. In venture, people say, hey, we're looking for qualified female candidates and people of color and like the numbers aren't changing, but we are working super hard. And I just, at some point in my career said like, what if we just took away intent and looked at outcomes? and just said like, well, what's happening? And I'd argue uh, the, business, the business facts that you outlined suggest an industry that's not interested in funding women or people of color. For some reason, those people aren't getting access. Now, there could be a bunch of like self-serving nationalizations. Well, their ideas aren't as good. And we're in the business of funding the best ideas. So the reason they're not getting money is that like their ideas don't come. Well, then the question is like, well, who's judging the merit of these people and their ideas? And um, I think I think back on a lot of the things that I took for granted when I got into venture capital that were accepted facts that feel like cringy now. Like I definitely sat on a number of panels in the early 2010s where VCs just like proudly proclaimed, hey, if you can't figure out how to connect to somebody on my network to get a warm introduction, like I just can't be bothered. I just like, I just can't. And that wasn't considered like offensive or exclusionary. That was in the category of like, that's just how venture capital works. I remember being on a panel where a guy said, I only wanna invest in companies where I can ride my bicycle from the office to meet the founders. And I don't think this person meant that as an exclusionary comment. I think they were expressing a desire to have physical proximity to their companies, which is not like in and of itself a bad thing, It just dramatically, and this office happened to be on Sand Hill Road. It just dramatically limited (laughs) the playing field of who this person. So I think part of it is some of the constructs of venture, particularly pre-Zoom, pre-pandemic, really like you had to be in San Francisco. Both you had to live here and your company had to be here. You had to raise money here in person, which meant if you were in Atlanta or New York, a lot of expensive plane trips and, and flights out here. And I think a lot of the business was focused on what was convenient for the venture capitalist. And what's convenient for most investors is to invest in people who went to the school you went to or that you know socially or that you know professionally in a domain that you understand serving a customer where you have some priors. And one thing I learned really quickly is I've met a lot of venture capitalists who don't have meaningful social or professional interaction with people of color, male or female. They live in communities where those people aren't well-represented. They work in venture firms where those people aren't well-represented. Their children attend schools where those backgrounds aren't well-represented and their portfolios don't contain founders of those. So I'm like, how on earth are these people ever going to feel comfortable with no connectivity whatsoever to people of color and to some extent, women? I think part of what's happened on the gender front is I think more investors, have more contact with women in a professional context Mm -hmm. and so it's it's harder to other women founders when you might be married to one or you might have one in your portfolio i think it's easier to other founders of color when you have almost no contact with people from their communities
1: right and i think it's so interesting you know both of you are talking about sort of this intention versus outcome and i do think are both, you know, the tech industry and the PR industry has been so focused on intention for so long that you know you have these well-meaning leaders who you know will say the right things, right? But but the outcomes and the results aren't being shown. Um, and, and you know, and I, I want to acknowledge that when we're talking about people of color, we we are talking most specifically about Black and and, and Latino um, because one of the one of the things I've heard in Silicon Valley, right, is well, we have like Asians or we have Indians represented, right? And the, they're not. An underrepresented group. Um, the, the underrepresented groups are um, Black and Latino, and I want to make sure that we acknowledge that. So we're not just painting a, a broad brush. Um, so so let's let's talk then. So we have talked about sort of the startup space. Let's talk about some of these more established companies and what happened recently. You know, we look at Coinbase and and um, Basecamp, right? Um, both companies sort of decided that they were apolitical and they didn't want to have some of these messy conversations that we all had in 2020 um, around equity, diversity, and inclusion. And, you know, I think both companies sort of framed it and positioned it differently. And, you know, there's some great journalism around, around both, and I will link to those in the show notes. But it, it made me wonder about, you know, A, are companies, are, are there companies taking a more tacit appro- approach to, to adopting these policies, um, and, you know, the fatigue is real, right? There is a real backlash to some of the really difficult conversations that were had in 2020. Um, Charles, do you want to take that one first?
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll try to be brief. I, I think um, one thing I've always, at least in the last few years, realized is like tech is, no, tech is not above society. Um, the tech venture industry has the same issues that our society has. And I think as a country, we still have a hard time reckoning with our racial past. And until we've come up with a better way to address that, these conversations are always going to be fraught, because there's a segment of, of society that like just doesn't want to have the conversation, wants the issue to go away. And um, I'm not surprised that these, these topics are spilling over into the workplace, because I'd argue like people aren't getting very much relief on these topics and conversations from the political process not much is not much is happening in Congress. So the only group you can effectively lobby is your employer. And employers, particularly in this labor market, I think are responsive. But I think part of what you're seeing is, I think some of this reflexively was like, hey, this George Floyd thing's a big deal. We should probably like, create space for this conversation. And I feel like it, people thought, well, we're just going to contain the blast radius to this conversation around George Floyd. I think what they didn't realize is there was a lot of hurt and pent-up frustration just underneath the surface and creating a little bit of space to talk about one incident really opened, the, opened the, the pressure release valve for some of these other things that have been simmering under the surface to come out. And I don't think companies were prepared. I think they're like, hey, we want to have a discreet conversation about this one man who was murdered. And then we kind of want to go back to business as usual. And I don't think they realized that when you loosen that pressure valve, other things are going to come out that you have to deal with. And I think companies can choose to not engage with these issues. I think it's interesting that the companies that have chosen not to engage with these issues are led by people for whom these issues are not personal. And so I think it's one thing when you're like, this is an abstract issue that doesn't affect me, my loved ones or my my life. I can say this is something that's not appropriate for work, but I'd argue there's lots of silly things we talk about. We talk about pro football, we talk about Star Wars, we talk about lots of things that work that are not, we talk about succession, I mean, we talk about lots of things that work that are not work, but there's some things that are deemed like, okay, to talk about socially and culturally at companies, or some things that aren't. And um, I, I understand where this discomfort's coming from, because I think a lot of people don't have the tools to have that conversation. And I think a lot of people are uncomfortable about where that conversation ultimately leads.
1: So I I wanted to follow up on something that you did say about, um, you know, about companies, you know, people are looking to companies because they are more responsive, particularly in this labor market um, than, than government. I mean, is there a recalibration around expectations um, and what companies like what social problems they can solve? Um, I felt like there was this big, you know, movement towards purpose. I remember 2017, I definitely saw that the pendulum swing really, really far towards, okay, well, you know, Salesforce, come in and solve our problems, please. And there seems to be this gradual realization about the limitations of private companies and what they can do. And I'm curious to know how that's how that shaping out in terms of how companies are talking about purpose and, and you know, addressing issues, social issues like this. And Sarita or Charles, you know, either one of you, know, you, feel free to chime in here.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's a tough, it's a big question. How are companies addressing these issues, right? I will say, you know, you see some companies standing out and doing kind of doing it, what you think doing it right. HP comes to mind, right? With bringing on Leslie Slayton Brown to really like spearhead, not just, um, you know, the lip service, but, you know, their board is now half female and like they they're, they seem to be walking the talk. Um, And I I think those kind, those are the kinds of changes, again, we talk back to outcomes, right? Those are the kinds of changes that we need to see. But, but I do think that, you know, I remember um, being in a PR firm in 2014 when, when, when Ferguson happened, Michael Brown um, was killed and, and the, 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 the organization wanted to do the right thing, right? Wanted to create safe spaces to talk about, that was the the thing, um, right? Create safe, but if you don't have, if you don't have, you know, if you have three people of color in an office, like it is a little bit difficult to create a safe space. Um, And I remember coming into the office one day and literally getting into my office and having the three people of color in the office follow me in and close the door, right? And say like, we don't know how to deal with the fact that, like, this is all we're talking about at home, and we can't talk about it here. Um, and I, I said, well, you know, as the only person of color on the leadership team, I felt empowered to talk about it, right? Because I was in a different place in my career. I didn't really have anyone to talk about it to, but I didn't feel the same kind of pain. And I, and, and I, so I, I took it to the to the group. And in bringing that up and explaining the the challenge and having the conversation um, for for these folks, I found myself, you know, tearing up and shaking. And I thought, okay, Sarita, if you, as, as a, you know, you've been here for a while, these are your peers, you know, they respect you, you are in a position of strength. If this is hard for you to bring up, how much harder is it for these people who are outside this leadership door? Um, I, I don't know how people, how companies are dealing with this um, effectively. I think we've seen it. I like to call it like a. I feel like it's a, it's a, a hype cycle, right? There's a, there's a bit of a racism hype cycle, and I think that as a, as a, as a country, we don't really have the ability to focus on more than one sort of, sort of. Uh, one of these kind of groups at a time. So you saw, right. So you saw um, the sort of the Ferguson 2014 thing. And that was all we talked about. Everyone was releasing their numbers. Right. And and how do we tackle this? Companies felt forced to talk about this. And then you saw sort of it come down when me too started to happen. Yeah. Right. And, and we couldn't sustain both conversations. So we stopped talking about race and we started talking about women and, and, Lord knows we needed to talk about women. So like, I, I'm not upset with that. But but it kind of didn't come back until 2020. It started to come back up, right? And now, um, now we have George Floyd, and now we're back to that, and we're not talking about women anymore, right? It's a little bit frustrating to look at the way that the, the dialogues sort of preempt each other. Um, and I think companies really need to figure out how to sustain all of those conversations internally because all of those communicate all of those communities are frustrated
1: yeah and and to, to your point you know to give a shout out to the name of the series intersection right i mean because the, the, the conversations about women were dominated primarily by the experiences of white women right so um, you know groups especially groups that intersect between um, some of these marginalized communities i mean they're getting really really lost in the shuffle um, Uh, Charles, I I would love to sort of get your take on, is there a reckoning around um, what we can expect from companies
0: in terms of solving some social problems? I think what Sreya said was really powerful. I just wanna acknowledge that. I think it was really well said. I think people are going to end up with diminished expectations for what companies can deliver. And I think we're ultimately gonna end back up where we kind of started, which is activism. I think people are going to realize that like companies when push comes to shove will do things that are in their commercial interest or of interest to the founders, which I think are the sort of the two big categories, um, that, that I think motivate companies either because of your shareholders or because of like personal founder interests um and i think people are going to realize that like companies while they can be responsive to a point to very specific things are not the place where you're going to get necessarily broader social change Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and i actually
0: think we're probably going to end up with like renewed activism on the political front. i think people are going to conclude that is the one venue where you might actually get relief
1: Mm -hmm. so i would maybe i maybe closing on um Charles, I'll ask you first, like if, a, if you have a portfolio company that comes to you and says, look, like I care about these issues, um, but it is really difficult to talk about them. You know, Sarita, again, to, yeah, to the story you gave, right? I mean, you were an empowered person at your organization and it was so difficult for you that, you know, you know, imagine being someone who is starting out in their career, right? Um, or just someone who doesn't have allies within the organization, um, how, how would you recommend that we can build in these conversations and these discussions in a sustainable way um, and so that there aren't these icky feelings afterwards, right? Like there isn't this sense of, well, you know, so this group had their day in the sun, Well, what about me and my grievances? And one, one of the, you know, one of the things that, you know, a popular way that this conversation tends to evolve is there are other types of diversity, right? And this reminder that, well, you know, there's there's I have agency leaders tell me, well, you know, I hired somebody from Montana and I think that's diversity because, you know, we're in New York and, um, you know, that's a new perspective or I hired a conservative and, you know, we're a pretty liberal organization. So like, how do we keep A, the conversation focused on the historically marginalized groups and B, how do we keep it sustainable? Um, so Charles,
0: what, what advice would you give? I, I think there's a generation of founders um, who just believe that they they want companies that reflect their values and their values are inclusive. And I think they are outcome oriented. And so I'm, I'm like, not as concerned about the generation of companies that I see coming up as I am about the companies that exist today. Huh. Um, I, I really, I, I really, and the reason I'm not as concerned, I'm not like without concern to be clear, Arthi. Um, <laughs> but I hear them talk about this more from a mind of like, well, this is the kind of company that I believe I want to create, not like, well, we got to have some women around here so that we have women on the website so that people like, it's not this like cynical, like, how do we check the box and move on? It's coming from a place of a belief that this is, um, this is like unjust. I think a lot of what holds companies back is people come to these conversations without the vocabulary and experience about how to navigate them and I think people are deathly afraid of saying the wrong thing yes and unfortunately the wrong thing is probably how they honestly feel and like there's this process of like how do you create space for people to express uninformed or potentially dangerously naive ideas without without feeling the concept and how do you also not put the burden of that on the three or four people of color in your company to educate the whole company for free usually on these like historical issues. And to me, it's a, it's a, it's a social failure that there's so many people who come to the table in their 30s and 40s, unable to understand why we're taking down statues of Robert E. Lee that were not put up during the, during the Confederacy, they were put up during reconstruction or like during Jim Crow, like the fact that, that people can't wrap their head around some of these ideas these are companies aren't wrong. These are fraught, dangerous topics. And I think there's a legitimate fear that if we allow these conversations to to blossom, it's gonna get real messy real fast. And, and how do you put the toothpaste back in the tube once it's gotten real messy?
1: And Charles, and you're someone again who's who 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 has a platform and is empowered. Do you hear from folks who aren't, you know, who don't have your stature in Silicon Valley and they say, hey, look, I I, I can't say what you're saying at my organization. I would be iced out or, um, or you know, my job would be in jeopardy.
2: All the time.
0: Yeah, yeah all the time. Yeah.
1: Um, Sarita, did you want to close on, on, on any thoughts? What would you advise your, your, your portfolio of, 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 of PR companies or, yeah, not PR companies, your portfolio of com- companies yeah. as a PR professional?
2: Yeah, I will say, you know, especially over the past year, we've had a lot of companies come to us looking for sort of uh, PR support around DE&I initiatives. Um, and, and we are very careful to to always counsel them to, okay, before we start banging a drum about, you know, and, and, and putting people, of, more people of color on the website, although bless you, put more people of color on the website, but um, Let's really take a, a thoughtful look at your practices. Let's take a, a thoughtful look at your culture. What are the things that you can do internally to to drive change, to 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 build community, um, and make sure that this isn't just a public relations practice, right? Um, and and I think people are often surprised to hear that from a PR firm, yeah. uh, right? That we don't we're not going to just take your money and go go tell a story, but we, you know, we view ourselves as an extension of our clients. Um, and so we're trying to help promote change um, and change in the right direction.
1: I that you're so spot on. Like PR should not just be about communication, it should be about impacting policy, right? And being able to say, hey, if we want our reputation to, to get better, here are the policies that we need to, to implement. Here are the policies we need to change. Um, yeah. That's what reputation, it, it, it really should be about what companies do, not what they say, right? Um, so, so I, always tell, tell, I have executives that want to be thought leaders and I always say like
2: if you want to be a thought leader at first you have to think something
1: yes yes well <laughs> and Charles this was such a great conversation I feel like this is such a I feel like we just started it and that um, I hope that maybe maybe at, at some point we can revisit this and and maybe we will document some change and and, and reflect on that um, but in the meantime thank you again for for both of your time Anytime. thank you And we will be back soon with another episode of the Provoke Media Podcast.
0: You've been listening to the Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.